Welcome to this Market Commentator podcast. My name is Raik van Kerk and it is my weekly podcast where I speak to leading investment professionals. My guest today is Victoria Ruvers. She is the Managing Director of Morningstar Investment Management in South Africa. Now, most investors would know Morningstar as one of the world's premier suppliers of financial and investment data. It offers excellent research tools and this information and tools uh, are used by financial advisors and analysts all around the world. Victoria, thank you so much for joining me. I want to talk about the managed portfolio service you offer in South Africa, where you actually develop model portfolios for financial advisors. First, tell us, when did the managed portfolio service launch in South Africa and how has it fared? Hello, Rake. Yeah, so the managed portfolio service launched just over five years ago. And I think what I'd like to do is maybe just rewind the clocks and say, when did the investment management business launch? And that was we're coming up for six years in February. Now, as an investment management business in South Africa, it's often referred to discretionary fund management or DFM. And for Morningstar, it's, it's a, a business that they've been doing for many, many years. And so your introduction was very kind. Yes, Morningstar does fantastic data. We have great research. We have wonderful tools. And really the natural evolution from a global perspective was to say, when the advisor said to us, you have the data, you know the managers, you've got the capital markets work. How do you build portfolios for us as advisors that either target a predefined outcome or an inflation hurdle? And so the investment management business was born in the U.S. It's uh, got a 27-year track record in the U.S. And the South African business is a subsidiary or just part of our global investment management business. And, and that was started in February 2015. So what we did when we launched our managed portfolios was to say, for many advisors, they want access to our capital markets work, our research and our portfolio construction and our tech but they don't necessarily want to have the commitment of having to use us or having to have an in-person relationship. They might be based in outlying regions. So what we did was we built up these portfolios. We've loaded them on pretty much every investment platform. And we use our tech and our tools to enable advisors to access them and to engage with their clients to create solutions or, or use our solutions to, to help their investors achieve their goals. Do you regard these portfolios as funds under management if an external advisor uses it to actually compile a, a portfolio for one of his or her clients? Yes, that's correct. So while these are not collective investments, they're managed on our discretionary license and we do earn a fee on assets that are under our discretion. So we do look at the total assets that we, we are under our discretion in, in terms of assets under advice or assets under management. So I just want to understand it perfectly. So say I am a financial advisor. I want to use one of your portfolios. Do I just subscribe and do it in the name of the client or do I use the Morningstar platform? It's a good question. So from a Morningstar perspective, we say uh, we use the terminology. We like to work with like-minded advisors and, and a like-minded advisor is somebody who also puts the end investor front and center of, of everything they do. And so we do have a, a slight kind of vetting process or due diligence process if, if an advisor wants to work with us. And it's really a case of contacting Morningstar. And then once we've you know agreed, all right, you can use these portfolios, we will link you on the investment platforms that you use as an advisor. So you're Rake and you say, I use 91's investment platform and I, I use Alan Gray's investment platform and we would link you. And then when you saw one of your end investors and you recommended a Morningstar portfolio, when you logged onto the system, it would just come up as an option like another fund would. And you would select the Morningstar balance portfolio and it would it would you know, populate through to the, the, the app form and it'd be as simple as that, just as like selecting it a different unit trust. 
I'm looking at a document which highlights the holdings of uh, the various portfolios. Um, let's look at the Morningstar balanced portfolio. It aims for a CPI plus 4%, which is pretty decent. Just take us through it. Exactly how should a financial advisor look at this portfolio and, and, and how should he or she take a decision based on the information here? When you look at our balanced portfolio, the one you've picked, is, this is forms part of the medium equity sector. And what's very interesting, if you look at the Reg 28 money in South Africa, the majority of money has moved into balanced funds. And balanced funds played a really good role at serving investors well over time. But over the last five years, they've been very disappointing and for a number of reasons. But one of the focuses has also been on fees. So the way that we have constructed our portfolios is first and foremost, we leverage our capital markets research and then our manager selection capability. But when we build the portfolio, we build it from a building block perspective. So we select the best managers that we believe will fulfill a role within the different asset classes, be it equity or income or global. And so what that the result of that portfolio is one, it uh, reflects our highest asset class convictions, and I can take you through some of those at the moment, our highest manager selection convictions, and it's resulted in really strong performance. So if you just look at our balance portfolio uh, to the end of August, you know, it was up a net of all fees up over 9% for the year, which is pretty good and quite a tough year. But I think more importantly is that if you look at the cost of the portfolio, it's very, very cheap relative to the sector and relative to other balanced funds. So we're trying to build portfolios in a very cost-conscious way because every basis point saved is an extra basis point of return that an investor can achieve. But we're also trying to reflect the best managers in their area of expertise and very good as or our highest conviction asset allocation. Some of the funds that are included includes Fairtree uh, Equity Prescient Fund, the Coronation Strategic Income Fund, the 91 Diversified Income Fund. The fees you charge, is that on top of the, the fund fees of those uh, fund managers? Yes, that's correct. So in many cases, so we charge a flat 20 basis point fee. We always quote all returns, net of fees, and we always quote the TIC, the total investment charge of our balance portfolio, net of all the manager fees and net of our fee plus that. So it's a net TIC as if you're comparing it to a different unit trust. So to give you an example, we run a living annuity portfolio. It's called the Monitor Moderate Income Portfolio. This portfolio targets a net income draw of 4% after all fees and including all the underlying manager fees and our fee and VAT, it comes in at 91 basis points, which we think is very competitive in this environment for a portfolio that's got you know 50% in equities and 35% offshore and got really good managers like Fairtree Equity in there mm. and A-Lit Equity Prescient. So it's, uh, we haven't substituted manager selection for price. Why don't you just package this into a funder fund? For a number of reasons. The first is, you know, as a business, three of our, our founding principles are, are independence, transparency, and long-term investment thinking. And, and when it comes to independence, uh, we don't have our own product. So when Morningstar, the portfolios are really a reflection of a great investment idea, but in a very transparent investment vehicle. So it gives advisors the choice to say, where is my platform of choice? Um, and, you know, which is the portfolio I'd like to use. And let's say they use the Morningstar Balanced. A very important point, Rake, is that, you know, we have to stack up on merit. So if somebody, an investor or an advisor chooses not to work with Morningstar, we don't want there to be any investor impact on exit. So should an advisor decide, I don't want to be in the Morningstar Balanced portfolio anymore, but I want to stay in my underlying funds, they can notify us, they can disinvest, and there is zero 
capital gains or transaction costs to the end investor. Now, if we were to launch a fund of funds or a Morningstar collective investment, firstly, you add another level of fees at the fund level. Secondly, investors have lack of transparency. Their statement would just say Morningstar balance. They wouldn't be able to see, okay, I've got Fairtree, okay, I've got 91 in there. And then thirdly, should they ever wish to disinvest, there'd be a capital gains transaction on on exit. So we think that the the structure of model portfolios provides great transparency. Um, It's very well priced. And it also has got ease of exit and, and lack of impact should investors ever choose to disinvest. Interesting. Let's talk about markets. Now, just for transparency's sake, we are speaking now on Friday afternoon on the 6th of November. And we have seen an absolutely explosive week behind us, not only politically in the U.S., but also on markets who reacted very, very interestingly to developments related to the presidential election. Just give us a sense of of how you see it. Rick, it was never going to be smooth sailing. I mean, if there was anything this election was going to give us is, is uh, you know, it was going to be tightly contested. Uh, there was going to be a lot of drama in this. And um, I think, you know, what it's created and what it's highlighted is just the polarization in America, in markets as well, and how much on a knife edge everything is. So markets do not like uncertainty. We know that. And I think it would have been really good if the predictions in the polls had been right. But but to me, you know, the polls, they, they never write, really. I mean, they, were, they weren't right in 2016. And, and I, I'm not too sure why we follow them so closely, but it but it's human nature, I guess. So the worst thing for markets is going to be if there is a very contested election, if, it, if Trump doesn't accept the results, if it doesn't go his way, if, you know, if there's if this thing drags out for too long. But I think um, what you are seeing just based on the preliminary results, again, being Friday where we are, is that it looks like if Biden is going to win, that the Senate is going to swing the Republicans way and that the House will be just a, a Democratic sort of House. And markets kind of appear to approve of this configuration. So what it does is it kind of lowers the risk of much higher corporate taxes, because although if Biden does win, the, the, the Senate will be controlled by the Republicans. It also creates an environment for much looser monetary policy for a little bit longer. And so markets seem to be slightly happy, or as I say, accepting of what's going on now, which is you've seen that with this kind of strong rebound that, that, that we've seen in the last few days, and also from a currency perspective. So, you know, just to kind of unpack, I guess, like a couple of key points and policy implications, you know, so Trump, when it comes to taxes, we know where he is. He's reduced taxes materially. Biden would like to raise somebody is going to get pushback from the Senate. Uh, healthcare, Trump's pretty much the status quo. And, and Biden, you'll see pushing for more Obamacare and public option for individuals. And I think the big one is really going to be regulations. So we've seen Trump in this role of continued rollback of regulations. And you're likely to see Biden kind of put in more regulation and stricter environmental rules. But most importantly is trade policy. So we know the Trump, the China wars with the escalated kind of tension. But if Biden comes in, into power, just see a much greater global trade that's positive for emerging markets, that's positive for the RAND and that's positive for South Africa. Now, I think less tension in world trade markets and between the biggest players that will, I think, calm some nerves. And hopefully you can take investment decisions based on facts and not expectations of what Trump will do in future and what he will say on Twitter. Um, <laughs> based on facts, not tweets. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so uh, the local market, we've had a dreadful period over the last three or four years, even five years. The market has actually gone nowhere. How do you see the local market in the context of South Africans being able to invest anywhere in the world? Why should they invest here? 
So being part of a, a global capital markets team, it's always interesting to see the views from, uh, I call them kind of unbiased US and UK and, and European colleagues when they, they look at South Africa through a, a lens of, of valuations and not emotion. And as South Africans, we do place a lot of emotion. We've been a lot of, we've been very disappointed for many years of policies and measures that haven't come to fruition. And, and just that's been reflected in the very disappointing returns. And so if you speak to any South African and you say, hey, the RAND could strengthen and South African equities, we could get very strong returns, you're likely to be looked at with an element of skepticism and like, yeah, yeah, heard that before and very unlikely. I want to take everything offshore. But if you just look at some of the fundamental factors, and you know, we find ourselves in an environment of low interest rates, which we have not seen in you know decades. We've got a very weak exchange rate, very undervalued currency. You know, we've had an element of balance of payment stability. We've seen an uptick in, in construction activity. We've seen our, our PMI pick up to a degree. And when you look at the valuations of a lot of our domestic equities, they are, are incredibly cheap. So when you when you take this environment and you say you've got very low borrowing costs, very low interest rates, and you've got very undervalued equities, it paints a picture for good next you know, few years for SA equities. I think the second thing to take into account is if you're looking at the investable universe, South African government bonds are a complete anomaly. Now, they're not without risk, but where in the world and, and can you find an asset class that's going to give you a 6% real yield, pretty much if you just buy it and hold it to maturity. You've got bond yields of around 9%. You've got cash rates of around 35 So you've got an incredibly steep yield curve. And it kind of doesn't make sense. So the market hasn't priced, is pricing in that our government is, is going to default on their debt. And should the government not default, you've got an option to buy South African government bonds, which also protection against the strengthening currency, and clip a coupon of 9% a year, get let's call it a 6% real yield each year. So when we look at the South African universe, we actually think that there are good, attractive opportunities for South African equities, South African bonds, and then obviously we're not that favorable in terms of cash and or listed property, although listed property is quite cheap. So we're actually pretty positive on the South African environment. Why do we not see more international investments into South Africa, if that is maybe an, an objective view of our market? I think for a number of reasons. One, if you're sitting in the US, I don't think the grass is greener on the other side. So I think everybody's got this this sort of tunnel vision of looking at where they are, this home bias at the moment of feeling like, you know, things are terrible in the US. If things are terrible in the US, why would I ever take money out and put it in a country like South Africa or, or an emerging market? They, everybody's just taking money kind of back to home base. So I think globally kind of risk appetite has has decreased somewhat. Secondly, when it comes to our bond market, Investors were not very happy with with some of the results that kind of came out from Treasury in our medium-term budget speech last year. And so you've already seen kind of that risk off trade as everything's gone back to home base. But I think if you see a Biden win, you could see quite a quick reversal back into our bond market. Our equity market's slightly different. You know, when foreigners buy our equity market, they tend to buy our, our retailers and our banks. And there, you know, we have structural headwinds. So we do need to see some pick up in earnings before I think we'll see them enter our market again. But it doesn't, you know, with valuations at these levels, you don't need a massive swing for things to change. You just need the, the delta of decline to, to stop being as bad. You need to things to just slowly start getting better. And then you can see quite a quite a change in, in valuations. One of the themes of the past few weeks and months is incredible volatility, not only in equity markets, but also in exchange rates, especially if you look at the RAND. 
And that makes investments really, really complicated and emotional. Rick, I think the concept of long-term investing is often spoken about, but it's very hard in action in, in, in reality because not only is there you know, access to data on your fingertips and there's this kind of desire to look at it, but you know, whether it's machine trading, whether it's big algos driving markets. In the short term, people talk about, you know, what this equity fund has done over one year. You know, one year is a meaningless time period. It's a tiny little time period if you're in for an equity fund. So I think when you look at markets, you go think, am I a trader am I, or am I an investor? And if I'm an investor, then time is your friend and impulse is your enemy. And we would say, look at the news, but don't really act on it make decisions for the long term and the volatility is absolutely something that's here to stay just the awash of money that is in the system mainly because rates are so low and i said the systems have changed in terms of the big drivers of of investment so you use volatility to your advantage if you see screaming opportunities that arise but in the short term the the swings and the roundabouts let them be water for a duck's back. They shouldn't change your investment strategy. It shouldn't change your strategy, but it can change the way you look at asset managers. Of course, Morningstar ranks the the asset managers and the different collective investment schemes uh, according to performance, and you do that really, really well. The thing is, if you look at the current market, you're going to see some schemes perform like yours, say 9% uh, over the past year. And you look at another fund that, say, moved moved sideways or only doesn't even beat the inflation rate. Then mm. if it's your money, it's relevant. And it's very difficult to actually listen to somebody and say, listen, just sit on your hands. I know. It's a hard strategy to say, which is why when we look at picking managers, performance is really the byproduct of a good process. Most of our time understanding the process of the manager. And when we look at the process, we want to look for three things, really. Is it is it a process that's easy to understand? Is it consistently applied? And are we separating luck from skill? Does performance match what the process is? So if you are an investor, we would encourage you not to chop and change your investments, but to do your homework up front and make sure you're investing with a manager where you understand their process. And it's a good process. And it's a manager that you have faith in. But then to sit with them through their periods of underperformance and outperformance, because often in the periods of outperformance, when the money moves to those funds, those are just good ideas that managers thought of or bought those shares many years ago, and the ideas have just come to fruition, and that's why they're performing. Often when managers are performing pretty poorly, if it's a good manager, that's actually the time that you want to invest, because that's when they're buying their good ideas. That's before their ideas have come to fruition. So as you know, when you look at our portfolios, that's the reason why we like to blend managers. That's the reason why we like a PSG equity with a fair tree equity in our portfolio, because they've got complementary alpha cycles, complementary investment styles, which means that the actual investment experience is much smoother. So you don't really have those big peaks and troughs. Victoria, thank you so much for your time today. That was uh, Victoria Ruvers. She is the Managing Director of Morningstar Investment Management in South Africa.